welcome to the Planet Beyond podcast, brought to you by Fugro, the leading partner in delivering geodata from the greatest subsea depths right to outer space. Our usual host, John Baston-Pitt, is currently out at sea, so this week's episode will be hosted by me, Alex Conacher. The journey towards net zero energy seems like a complicated and expensive process. New and novel inventions, promising to be silver bullet solutions to green energy, are being proposed and receiving funding. But our guest today says developing and investing in these new technologies is a waste of time. In his book, No Miracles Needed, Professor Mark Jacobson argues that the solution or solutions to the energy transition already exist and are right in front of us. And that's with no additional technologies or exotic workarounds required. In other words, no miracles needed. Welcome, Mark. Um, maybe you could start by telling us a bit about yourself and your background. I'm a professor of civil and environmental engineering at Stanford University, and I've been working at Stanford since 1994. And the aim of my research is to understand and solve large-scale air pollution, climate, and energy security problems through clean renewable energy systems. And I've developed computer models uh, of the atmosphere to study air pollution and climate and of renewable energy resources and grid integration of renewable energies to try to understand the solutions better. And so over the last 14 years, since 2009, our group has been developing energy plans to transition countries, states, cities, and towns to 100% clean renewable energy and storage for all purposes, namely electricity, transportation, buildings, and industry, everything that we use energy for. And those solutions involve primarily what we call wind, water, and solar. So using onshore and offshore wind, solar photovoltaics on rooftops and in power plants, concentrated solar power, geothermal electricity, some geothermal heat, some solar heat, uh, hydroelectricity, and tiny amounts of tidal and wave power. But in addition to the electricity generation and heat generation, we need storage, so we also do uh, consider storage, electricity storage, heat storage, cold storage, hydrogen for some applications. And we consider the grid, we need to expand the grid to get to 100% renewables. And we consider electric appliances and machines like electric cars, electric heat pumps, electric induction cooktops. The idea is to electrify as much as we can. And that's almost everything. Some things will have direct heat for, but you know, 98% will be electricity, even most heating will be from electric heating. And provide the electricity and heat with just wind, water, and solar. And so that's what we've been developing plans for over the last 14 years. This is obviously a topic that we read a lot about, almost on a daily basis. It seems every university in the world has latched onto this problem, solving these challenges. Every university has some has work on energy, um, but a lot of that energy is still, research is still focused on making fossil fuels more efficient. And even in some places they work on nuclear power, some places they work on bioenergy. Uh, we, work, uh, we work on just clean renewable sources. We're, our goal is to eliminate air pollution. So, and to do that, we have to eliminate combustion. And 
also to solve global warming and provide energy security. So we can't have technologies that emit anything and we can't have technologies that cause uh, risks. So that, you know, there are a subset of technologies that do this and we focus on those technologies. And we're talking about wind, water and solar there exclusively. Yeah, so, well, wind, water, solar, again, is just onshore and offshore wind, solar photovoltaics on rooftops and power plants, large-scale, utility-scale solar photovoltaic plants, existing hydroelectricity, those are, those are you know, where you have big dams that have hydropower. And a lot of people don't like hydropower or for some reason or another, and but we're, we're not planning to grow it. We want to use existing dams more efficiently. Why don't people like hydropower? Well, a lot of people, and because it takes up, uh, you need to like flood a, a valley, for example, to create a dam. And then it also re it interrupts the natural flow of rivers. And so it affects fish as well as water available downstream. But, you know, in the U.S., for example, there are 84,000 dams, but only 3% have hydroelectric power. So there are plenty of dams that can be removed before hydroelectric power dams need to be removed. Hydropower is a pretty versatile addition to the energy mix too, isn't it? Well, the, the nice thing about hydroelectric power is that it provides both, both base load power, which is flat supply, and it supplies peaking power, which is, it's one of the few technologies that you can, you can basically open up a sluice gate of a hydro dam and water starts to flow and within 15 seconds you'll generate electricity. So it, it produces electricity within 15 seconds, which even a natural gas plant, an open cycle gas turbine, which is used also for providing electricity when you don't have other sources of energy, it takes five minutes to get to 100% power output, whereas a dam takes 15 seconds. Now a battery takes 20 milliseconds. <laughs> so so if, we, if we had to rate these things, you know, batteries are the best at providing peaking power followed by hydropower or also what's called pumped hydropower. Pumped storage, which involves two reservoirs. The operator pumps water from the lower to the upper reservoir during periods of low demand and releases the water to generate energy during periods of higher demand. But anyway, we also propose to use geothermal electricity and heat and uh, small amounts of tidal wave power and concentrated solar power, which is most useful in deserts. But effectively, you don't propose expanding capacity, or at least not much, outside of wind and solar. Well, wind and solar are growing so fast, and they are the cheapest forms of new electricity by far worldwide. They're half the cost of natural gas for new generation. It was announced today that Iowa, for example, the state of Iowa in the US, it's now produces a record 64% of all its electricity from wind alone. And that, uh, and there's some solar already being built there too. But you know, Iowa used to be powered by coal and natural gas and hardly any wind. And now it's dominated by wind and li just little amounts of coal and gas. And not just in Iowa. This is, of course, a global trend. I mean, there's over a terawatt of wind installed now worldwide, which to put that in perspective, I mean, to power the entire world for all purposes, we need about 
Well, we need to, there's, in the end, we need, if we transition all energy, so if we electrify transportation, electrify buildings, electrify industry, and provide the electricity with wind, water, solar, first of all, our power demand goes down significantly, about 56% worldwide. That's because electric heat pumps, when we go from gas heating, for example, to electric heat pumps for heating, Electric heat pumps use one-fourth the energy as natural gas heaters. So our power demand goes down significantly by going to electric heat pumps instead of gas heaters. Same with electric vehicles. Electric vehicles use one-fourth the energy as gasoline or diesel vehicles for per unit distance driven. And so you, your power demand goes down substantially by going to electric vehicles. If you electrify industry, your power goes down a few percent. And also getting rid of all the energy needed to mine, transport, and refine fossil fuels and uranium. That's 11% of all world energy worldwide is used for that process, whereas no energy is required to bring sunlight to a solar panel or wind to a turbine. So when you add all these energy savings up due to electrification and eliminating energy mining, then you reduce and account for some energy efficiency improvements, you can reduce world power demand 56%. So you need much less energy. Let's just restate that. Reducing energy demand worldwide by 56% as a benefit of a renewable energy industrial system. What is that in actual power? The world produces, or you consumes, about 13 terawatts or trillion watts of power in the annual average. That's actual consumption of energy that's in all forms of fuel. In 2050, that's expected uh, to go up uh, substantially to over 20 terawatts. But if we go to wind, water, and solar, we drop because of this huge reduction of demand requirements, we drop down to nine terawatts. So less power demand in 2050 than is the case today. That nine terawatts, you know, if that's delivered power. So if we look at uh, how much wind and solar we'll need to provide, and hydro we'll need to provide that power, well, you know, wind turbine per converts about, you know, the wind turbines are based on what's called a nameplate capacity, uh, which is their maximum power output they can achieve if, you know, if the wind is really blowing strongly. But the wind isn't always blowing strongly and the sun isn't always shining. So wind turbines and solar panels don't achieve their maximum possible output. So if a turbine is rated at, at one megawatt of power as a maximum power, on average over the year, it might obtain 35% of that average, that maximum power on average. Same solar panels are a little less, they're about maybe 25%, depending on where they are. It could be 16% in some places, but you know, maximum might be 25% in other places. So, in terms of what's the nameplate capacities of wind and solar, we might need around 20 or 25 terawatts worldwide to achieve nine terawatts of power on average. And we already have one terawatt of wind installed of that 20 to 25 terawatts of nameplate capacity. So that's the point I'm trying to make is we've made great strides, but you know, a lot of this growth has been in China actually of wind and solar. I mean, you know, China has, grown their wind and solar so enormously just in the last year, two years, uh, that 
you know, they're getting to on the order of half a terawatt alone of, of wind and solar. And this rapid expansion brings the cost down worldwide as the technology advances and production increases. So this is why the, this rapid, everything is growing in terms of wind, solar, batteries, electric vehicles, heat pumps. Those markets are growing. What's not growing is like nuclear is very stagnant. There was no, less nuclear power produced in 2022 than in 2006. And so it's really just been constant to declining. So that's not even a possible solution because it takes so long to, not only because of, it takes so long to put up a new nuclear plant in terms of both its planning and operation. Right now in liberalized markets, it's between 17 and 21 years for a new nuclear plant. You know, other markets might be 14 years. I'll ask you more about nuclear power in a moment, but China is one country, admittedly the joint most populous country in the world along with India. But you've produced a report, which we've linked to in the show notes, that claims 145 countries worldwide could transition to purely wind, water and solar power. Well, yeah. So, well, there actually there are about close to 200 countries in the world and we have data for 145. So and these are these represent about 99.7 percent of all world emissions. We think the other countries can also be uh, can go wind, water, solar too. There's no reason they couldn't. We just didn't have data to test that. But for the countries we did examine, yeah, we found every country it has a diverse set of resources, wind, water, solar resources, and every country, even the smallest ones, can provide all their own energy for all purposes with just wind, water, solar. It is more efficient and lower cost to interconnect with nearby countries if you can. So, you know, but island countries won't be able to do that. So they might have, they'll have to go with being isolated in terms of their grid. With some interconnection possible as high voltage direct current interconnectors proliferate. But that's okay too, because island countries tend to have really good resources, uh, wind, water, solar resources. They usually have a lot of sun and they usually have a lot of wind. And many of them are volcanic islands. Like, uh, yeah, I visited recently. Uh, an island recently, and a set of islands, and it was just all made from volcanoes. I mean, that's, and so there's a lot of geothermal electricity and heat potential on these islands, these volcanic islands. What are the exceptions? Yeah, even the smallest countries are some that are more difficult than others, but even those you can you can still do. Like uh, Singapore, for example, that's a little difficult. Uh, Gibraltar, that's a little difficult because of the high population over a tiny amount of land. Uh, but, you know, with rooftop solar, offshore wind and solar, you know, you can put off solar offshore now. And there are actually many examples of offshore solar being installed. So even if you're like a tiny country with not much land, uh, there's still options for providing 100% wind water solar. What about the more extreme scenarios? I'm picturing a, a still summer night in Western Europe. High population, no wind. Obviously, no sun at nighttime. How does it cope? Well, yeah, we study that specifically for Europe for several years, and we do it at 30-second resolution. We never find any problem because it's not just wind on the grid or solar, it's also hydropower. And so you have Norway and Sweden and Switzerland, which are basically big batteries with all that hydropower. And plus, then we're going to have, in a future grid, we're going to have lots of batteries. I mean, already California's batteries now can supply 12% of the peak power in all seasons except for summer, in which power demand doubles. And in that case, we're down to like six to 8% power from batteries. So 
We have batteries, but also there's hydrogen is another form of storage that in some cases will be used for electricity storage. I think batteries are more efficient in general, but hydrogen, uh, especially if you have longer uh, times of lack of demand, you, you can either have more batteries or you can have some hydrogen fuel cells in addition to batteries. So there are multiple ways. Plus, we benefit from that reduction in overall energy demand from a fossil fuel to a renewable grid. Yeah, we're not going to use energy for gasoline or diesel for transportation. We'll have more electric vehicles. And we can shift, when you have more electric vehicles, we can actually shift the time of electricity use to daytime. So instead of people charging their electric vehicles at night when the wind's not blowing and there's no sun, you give people incentives to charge their electric vehicles during the day. And so that's called demand response. So demand response is actually a big tool in keeping the grid stable, which is utilities giving people incentives not to use electricity at certain times of the day. And even just verbally telling people there might be a blackout if you use too much electricity helps. I mean, this happened last summer in California where the grid was on the verge of a blackout. So the governor of California said, asked people, please don't use electricity between these hours or reduce your electricity. And it worked well, didn't it? It prevented a blackout entirely. On the batteries, what exactly is the potential for them in terms of grid response? They're so versatile, you can use them either for really short peaks, high, short but high peaks in demand, or low draws of demand or a long time, or anything in between. And this is why, so it's just, it's just a question of adding more batteries. So you can meet any demand by just adding batteries. That's... So as long as the battery cost comes down, that's the key thing. If it comes down below $60 a kilowatt hour, then the game is over basically. Right now they're at about $125 to $150 a kilowatt hour of storage. So by 2030 though, when we really need all these batteries, you know, we expect the cost to come down close to 60. And definitely by 2035. Is the political support forthcoming? That's only a little over a decade away now. Well, many politicians have globbed onto these findings. In fact, in 2016, in the U.S. election, all three Democratic presidential candidates adopted our studies and goal of 100% renewables as part of their platform. Bernie Sanders, Hillary Clinton, and Martin O'Malley were the three Democratic candidates. And all three of them had a platform to go to 100% renewable energy for the United States. And... In fact, then since then, 19 U.S. states and territories have passed laws or executive orders to go to or effectively to 100% renewable electricity for the state. And so have over 180 U.S. cities. And in, in terms of businesses, there are over 400 international businesses, including eight of the 10 biggest in the world, that have... Uh, policies to go to 100% renewables in their global operations. And then there are worldwide, there are 62 or so countries that have policies to go to 100% renewables in electricity, but only one country to go to 100% renewables in all energy. That's electricity, transportation, buildings, and industry, and that's Denmark. So this whole idea of 100% renewable energy in the green, it's called the Green New Deal, that came from our plans to go to 100% renewables and those plans have been adopted by policymakers worldwide. Uh, but, you know, it's one thing to be adopted by policymakers. It's enough to get enough votes to actually pass them and actually have effective legislation. And also we need to go to all energy sectors 
it's been a lot easier to get these laws and policies in the electricity sector than in other sectors. So what are the major barriers to implementing this transition? For example, what's the cost to countries looking to make this change? Well, yeah, I'll address the cost first. It's actually cheaper to, to transition, and I'll give you some numbers. So worldwide, today we spend, on the world spends about $11 trillion per year on energy. In 2050, that's estimated to go to about 17 to $18 trillion per year. But if we electrify all energy, we'll go down and provide the energy with wind, water, solar, we'll go down substantially uh, to uh, on the order of uh, 6.8 or $7 trillion per year. So that's going to be about $11 trillion per year savings in 2050. The upfront capital cost is $62 trillion worldwide in the 145 countries we examine. You divide the $62 trillion by $11 trillion per year savings in energy, that's a payback time of less than six years. So in other words, yeah, we're saving $11 trillion per year due to, and there's for two reasons. One is because I mentioned the 56% reduction of power demand, you need 56% less energy or power uh, with wind, water, solar, but also the cost per unit energy is another 15% lower. So that's so there's a 63% decrease in the annual cost that people pay for energy with wind, water, solar. And that's how you get $11 trillion per year savings. And so it's a six-year payback time. So it's going to save people money. In other words, if we don't do this, it's going to cost everybody a huge amount of money. Not cost then. So what are the barriers? Well, the barriers are, one of the main barriers is the, the competition. The fossil fuel industry is putting out all sorts of proposals to use fossil fuels in different ways. And they're basically covering up what's the real impact of what they're doing. So, you know, there, there are four major schemes that they've proposed, uh, carbon capture, direct air capture, blue hydrogen, and electrofuels. All these involve extending the life of fossil fuels and claiming that they're going to reduce carbon as a result. And in fact, uh, it's easy to show, and it has been shown, and I've shown this in papers, that Carbon capture, well, it requires more energy than no carbon capture because carbon capture and same with direct air capture, they both require energy to run this equipment. And then it also requires equipment. And even if the energy is renewable energy using to run carbon capture equipment, like if it's wind, it's always more efficient to take that same wind and replace a coal plant or fossil plant instead of to try to capture carbon from that plant. Because not only does replacing a coal plant reduce more carbon dioxide than does carbon capture for the same wind electricity, but replacing a coal plant eliminates the air pollution and the mining of the coal, whereas carbon capture doesn't do either. It sounds like, from your perspective, a lot of effort and resource is being expended on technological dead ends. What is your opinion on the recent Inflation Reduction Act in the US and the hundreds of billions of dollars it earmarks for climate-friendly technologies? I'd say 40% of the money is going to useless endeavors, such as carbon capture, direct air capture, blue hydrogen, electrofuels, small modular nuclear reactors, bioenergy, these are all technologies that have no benefit whatsoever for climate. They all increase or don't help 
with uh, air pollution, or they have energy security risks like nuclear in particular. But and so these are just pushed by lobbyists, and in order to get compromise between Democrats and Republicans, there's you know, certain groups that really get donations from the fossil fuel industry, the nuclear industry, the bioenergy industry. And in order to pass a law that includes renewables, you need to agree, a lot of these politicians have to agree to these other uh, subsidies that are useless. There is, of course, another technology that I said we would come back to. Nuclear. I'm interested to hear your views on this one. Well, yeah, there's existing nuclear, then there's new nuclear. And with new nuclear, there's large and there's small. So with new, new nuclear, whether it's large or small, you know, it takes 17 to 21 years in liberalized markets between planning and operation of a new nuclear plant. There's one in, there's like one nuclear plant being built in the U.S. with two reactors in Georgia. And they're on years uh, 17 and 18. And one of the reactors is almost connected to the grid. And the other one still has another year to go. But it's cost $35 billion. And that's way higher than the original estimate. And that's about $15 a watt compared to $1 a watt for new wind or solar. When we look at the annual energy cost, it's still five to 10 times higher annual energy costs. So it would take, if you invested that same $35 billion in wind and solar initially, the wind and solar would have been put up within three years. So we're talking something that takes, you know, 14, 15, 16 years longer and costs so much more, costs 10 times, five to 10 times more. Why would you waste your time on that? If we need to solve 80% of the problem by 2030, there's zero point in investing in new nuclear. What about small modular reactors? Small modular reactors aren't even proposed to be around for sale until 2030-ish. And there's no evidence that they're gonna be any cheaper or take less time. So these are, this is just a waste of money, it's like a money pit. I mean, and plus it's our, it emits, you know, nuclear emits during this period because you're waiting around for nuclear to be built. It's already emitted enough CO2 from, it's laid enough cement for a sidewalk from Miami to Seattle. And all that carbon dioxide has gone into the atmosphere over the last decade or so. And without a single kilowatt hour of electricity being generated. And so it has all its carbon emissions from building the plant that take, and it takes so long to build it. Plus there's, because you didn't put in wind and solar, all these emissions from coal and natural gas on the grid were not displaced. So those are called opportunity cost emissions. And then there are emissions associated with the mining and refining of uranium. And then there are the fact that nuclear power plants emit heat directly and they emit water vapor. When you add it all up, they emit about one third the carbon dioxide equivalent as natural gas and about nine to 37 times that of wind. So they still emit carbon dioxide, but then they have all these energy security risks, meltdown risk, weapon proliferation risk, uranium, underground uranium mining, lung cancer risk, waste risk, you have to store the waste for 200,000 years. So cost, speed, health, security risks, this all makes them an unpopular, non-viable solution? These are just not, these have energy security problems, they have 
carbon emission and air pollution emission problems associated with their construction and delays in operation. And they're just not a solution as a result because we need technologies that have to can be implemented quickly at low cost and don't have emissions and aren't energy security risks. Small modular reactors, they're going to be the same. So is a wind, water and solar dominated grid an inevitability? I think um, if we don't if we don't make any extra effort, we'll eventually we'll convert to wind, water, solar for everything because it's so much more efficient and cost effective. But it could take a long, long time because if we don't actually have effective policies, I mean, just based on price alone, it will go to wind, water, solar. But that transition will be too slow because we need an 80% transition by 2030 and 100% by 2035 to 2050, even ideally 2040. But based on price alone, the efficiency, I mean, just driving an electric car will save uh, a consumer $30,000, $35,000 in fuel costs alone over 15 years. I mean, driving electric cars about 70 cents a gallon equivalent, driving a gasoline or diesel or even ethanol car, well, gasoline or diesel is about $4 a gallon or so. And you could do the math, driving 15,000 miles a year, which is average for 15 years, you'll save huge amounts of money. So, and even if the cost of the car is $10,000 higher, it doesn't take a lot of math to figure out you're gonna save so much money by driving an electric car. It's, it's surprising that anybody's driving a fossil fuel car still. I'm, I'm kind of shocked because it's just, people are not aware of the, the cost benefits of electric vehicles. Same with heat pumps. They use one-fourth the energy as gas, and so they have much lower fuel costs. So there's this natural transition, and wind and solar are half the cost of gas. So, But it's still, you're gonna, you have a lot of legacy fossil fuels that they, they, a lot of them have paid themselves off, so they're not just going to go out of business when they're off. The events of the last couple of years have made it abundantly clear that the petrochemical supply can be volatile. But does the interconnected world of renewables also bring with it any challenges? What are the geopolitical implications of an energy transition? I'm going to argue that we're going to reduce the international trade of energy with this because we eliminate all oil and gas production for energy. So that eliminates you know, digging for oil in different countries. It eliminates all you know, inter-country gas or oil transfers or coal transfers. It eliminates the need to ship oil and gas over the ocean to islands, which result in high electricity prices. So it reduces energy insecurity. By reducing the international reliance, the reliance of some countries on fossil fuels uh, from other countries. And this, and that's proven, caused, it's, that's proved to cause energy insecurity problems throughout the world. Now, in this case, there can be and will be electricity trades between nearby countries, between adjacent countries, or even could be long distance. But it's going to be, those already exist, so we're not really, we're expanding those just in terms of the capacity, not necessarily in terms of, you know, having new inter, new countries connecting with each other, but in some cases you will. So I'd say overall, because we're eliminating the fossil fuel transfer internationally, we're going to improve energy security rather than decrease it. 
fossil fuels do have a destructive history, but people would be writing into the show if I didn't ask you about the extraction of raw materials for the energy transition. Is this a fair objection? Well, no, the mining today, due to because we have to continuously mine every day oil, gas, and coal for energy, and we go to zero mining for energy, continuous energy with wind, water, solar, because wind comes right to the turbine, solar comes right to the panel. So you're, you're referring to mining for the infrastructure, which also occurs with fossil fuels. I mean, you're talking about building batteries, and that's like one-time mining over a 20-year period, basically. And take the case of lithium. Uh, well, so just to put in perspective, we're going to be reducing overall mining. If you look on an annual basis, how much material is mined for coal, oil, and gas, plus rare minerals and other elements for building infrastructure, uh, we're going to reduce mining overall, the mass of material mined, by about 99.9%. Okay, so we're talking a trivial addition. You know, what's remaining is a trivial amount of what we're doing right now. I mean, just to put it in perspective, every year in North America, there are 50,000 new oil and gas wells drilled. And there are 1.3 million active oil and gas wells right now and 3.2 million abandoned ones. Worldwide, there are about 25 million abandoned oil and gas wells. So when people talk about the mining that's needed for batteries and ignore the mining that's going to be eliminated by fossil fuels, fossil fuels occupy 1.3% of US land area. That's how much mining and pipelines and gas stations and storage facilities exist. And we're gonna use less than 1% of, of US land and also worldwide about 0.53% of, of world land for wind, water, solar infrastructure. So we'll reduce land use and mining tremendously. Now take the case of lithium. Well, first of all, all batteries can be recycled. And like Sonnen is a battery company and they recycle 100% of materials of their batteries. They state it right on their website and they have warranty of 15,000 cycles for 15 years, which means the batteries will last at least 20 years and as a car battery probably, and then, it, then it'll probably go, you know, if it's not, it could be, if it's used as a car battery, there are companies now that take car batteries that still have 60 or 70% of their peak power available and they'll turn them into grid electricity storage. And so you can extend the life by putting grid electricity, and they can also be recycled. Uh, Redwood Materials is another company that recycles batteries. And then there's also, you can mine it from like the Salton Sea in California, potentially has 40% of all the world's lithium needs. It's one location. And right now they already have geothermal electricity plants operating there where they pull up a hot brine. And in that brine, there's lithium. You can extract lithium from that brine without any new mining. So here's a source of lithium that doesn't necessarily require any new mining at all. The amounts of mine material we're going to need are going to be 99.9% lower than we currently have. You mentioned lobbying as a key obstacle. Does anything else stand in the way of this renewable future? Well, I think education is important. And so lack of education is a big obstacle about what's possible. Most people aren't still aware of what's possible, of the benefits of, of the different technologies, the new technologies, or even how to implement them themselves. But this is what you do, isn't it? And your style is very much one of gathering facts and putting them across to people to listen to the arguments and see the way forward. 
given everything you're up against and the timelines involved, are you optimistic or pessimistic overall? I mean, I'm optimistic because things have actually changed in our favor a lot in the last couple of years, especially. I mean, we see 70% of all new energy installed worldwide is wind, water, solar each year now for the last few years. And we see adoption of electric vehicles, heat pumps, they're all taking off in ways they haven't before. And the costs have come down and there's more, there's less objection than I've seen in the past. So yeah, I mean, there is a lot of objection still. And I think I, right now though, I think that it's been twisted or it's been changed to, uh, instead of people objecting to wind, water, solar, what they're, they're proposing these alternative scenarios, let's use carbon capture, let's use uh, um, direct air capture, blue hydrogen, electrofuels, small modular nuclear. They're trying to divert attention instead of objecting directly to wind and solar. They're saying, you know, wind and solar, yeah, we'll grow those, but let's also do these other things. So their, their narrative has changed to be, oh, we should just try all everything. Let's just do all of the above, uh, all tools in the toolbox. These are just mantras that are just really wrong-headed. And we need to focus on what works. We know what works, what doesn't work. And they're trying to say, well, you know, you don't know if we, we can improve these technologies. First of all, they're not. some of them are not designed to reduce air pollution. They're not designed to provide energy security. They're designed to keep fossil fuels in business. And they don't, like, they'll ignore air pollution impacts and they'll just focus on carbon and claim that they reduce carbon, even though that's not the only issue to, to deal with. So you have to, you know, keep at it and keep uh, providing the information to you know, educate people about, you know, the this podcast covers some of the greatest challenges facing us today, both as industries and as communities, so it's easy to become a bit pessimistic as to the scale of the issues. I have to say, it's been a real pleasure to talk to someone who is really very positive, very optimistic about the future. Clearly, things have to get done more quickly, political promises need to materialise into actions, because the reality is, we really are almost out of time. Mark, do you have any final words? Yeah, well, I, as you say, I, I mean, I am very optimistic and positive about this because I, I do the numbers, I know the numbers, I know it's possible. The costs are definitely in the favor of wind, water, solar. Technologies are here. We have 95% of the technologies we need. I mean, the ones we don't need, we know how to do as well, like long distance aircraft, long distance ships, which is probably hydrogen fuel cell, and the short distance aircraft and ships will be electric, and there's already being deployed. So I'm optimistic we can and will do it, and more and more people are on board as well. And, you know, as I mentioned, I, we, I feel there's less objection to a transition, uh, but there's just more pushing other technologies that are not useful. So, you know, it's still going to be a struggle for a while, but I'm still optimistic we will overcome it, and we will implement a 100% clean renewable energy system ultimately. Thank you. And for any listeners who want to learn more about Mark's work and that of his team, we've linked to the Stanford University website in the show notes, and also to Mark's book, No Miracles Needed, where Mark and his team have studied most of the world's countries for more than 20 years, and they found out that wind, hydropower, and solar power have the capability to solve our energy and climate crises. And no need to search for additional technologies. The solution is available to us, 
and it's down to us, policymakers, and society at large to pursue these clean energy sources. Thank you very much for joining us today, and this has been a really wonderful Planet Beyond podcast. Your regular host, John Baston Pitt, will soon return from his maritime adventures, and all that's left to say is, until next time, be safe, be remarkable, be the difference. <laughs>